You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have a returning guest, Dale Frost, CEO of Microbiome Therapeutics. I spoke to Dale a while ago, and I wanted to catch up with him. He was very knowledgeable about the microbiome in general and a good person to talk to. And it's an ongoing series that I'm doing on the microbiome. It's becoming more and more um, of an important thing, I believe, uh, that will hold the key to a whole bunch of ailments that people suffer from. Again, this is all my belief. The science seems to be supporting it. So I wanted to have him back. So, Dale, thanks for being here. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so tell me about um, microbiome therapeutics. What's the premise of the company? So the uh, the field of the microbiome is is one that uh, in, encompasses a whole range of, of human health and actually animal health as well. And so, so for years, we've all been increasingly aware of, of gut health and um you know the, the probiotics and live foods like yogurts have have uh, the sales have soared and, and done quite well. But but you know the your question would be is well why why is that what what's behind this intuitive understanding of of what's going on in our our GI and and uh, the idea that we might be able to eat things that might improve our, our gut health and the, this this sort of basic understanding is now. Um, bolstered with increasingly uh, impressive uh, medical science. It's sort of delving into the basic questions, what's actually going on inside us uh, that has to do with probiotics and prebiotics and and why might that be. Uh, uh, Gut health and what we do um, about it uh, is, is what we first think about. But more importantly, it's really the effects of what's going on in our gut that influence our entire, our entire health. So, you think about GI regularity, you think about, you know, upset stomachs and that sort of thing, and you think maybe taking some probiotics might be uh, the good thing. But now what we've been able to do over the last uh, 10 years or so, the scientists around the world have published thousands and thousands of articles, and it's it's one of these things, you know, people who aren't following this closely may think, well, some things come and go. I can tell you, having been in the biotechnology field for 30 years, the microbiome arena is one of the richest, broadest um, paradigm shifts in biotechnology and, and, and health food in particular, health food sciences uh, in particular, that's um, uh, impactful. And the genies are out of so many bottles, it's, it's not going back again. 
So what I find fascinating about this is, you know, you take the probiotics or you take prebiotics and you say, well, what, what's actually happening? Why is, why is that a good thing? And, and, and that, which might be intuitively obvious, is then a fascinating sort of uh, sleuthing job. And I think that might be an interesting departure to, to, to uh, delve into. And the answer comes down to the following. There's only a few different things that can happen in our lower gut that, that, that we're talking about. And it's that these um, cells, these, these probiotics, these things that naturally occur in our, in our lower GI are bacteria primarily, not just bacteria, but there's a series of microorganisms. There's tens of trillions of them, some three pounds worth. Their numbers outnumber our own cells. The genetic machinery, the things that uh, keep these little uh, microbes alive and what they're doing is from a genetic viewpoint, DNA viewpoint, is more complex than our own DNA. The number of molecules that they produce is more numerous than those of the molecules that our own cells produce. And in the old days, we thought that, okay, you eat food and in some way energy is extracted from the food and it goes out the backside. And that's what our, our digestive tract is all about. But what's happening now, and what we understand now more completely, is that those bacteria, those microbes in our GI, have a very important role that goes well beyond extraction of energy, if you will. And it has to do with those cells, uh, of which there's perhaps a thousand different species and strains, um, absorbing their own food. You know, in other words, the food that we eat is actually food for them in some cases. And there's maybe a thousand different species, and their populations vary. The different types will grow in numbers in some cases, will shrink in other cases. And it's that balance of the different uh, bacteria that are there that is increasingly the focus. And in fact, when that's out of balance, the word that people um, coined to capture that is dysbiosis, uh, sort of a, a, well, a, a lack uh, of a balance. Yeah, quick question here. Do you think that the microbes are eating first and then our, our somatic cells are, are eating their metabolites or are we eating together at the dinner table? Like, What, what do you think is happening? Yeah, so th th that's a, a, a fascinating story in its own right, and it, it has completely to do with the diets uh, of the modern Western world that are so terrible for us. Is is generally speaking, if you're eating a, a reasonable diet, you think about your upper GI, your stomach, and your intestines is where a lot of the initial processing takes place, and a lot of the energy is extracted. So if you're eating simple carbohydrates, uh, you're eating first, meaning you're, you're the host. We call the, the human the host, if you will, uh, is, is getting the benefit of those simple carbohydrates. So if you have um, uh, fruit juice and you drink that, it's going to absorb in your system pretty well. And that your lower GI, and this is the, the tricky bit, uh, it's something you can be attentive for. You know how people, when an individual is, is expecting a, a baby, they, they, you know, we all think about how they're eating for two people. Um, well, we're eating for you know, trillions of, of microbes. And when you're see, eating those simple carbohydrates, those microbes are not getting fed. And so who's getting eaten first depends on what you're eating. If you're eating a good, healthy diet and it's full of, of prebiotic natural um, fibers, uh, they go to the lower GI and, and the microbes are well fed. But by and large, the vast majority of, of, of the Western world is underfeeding their microbes. They're feeding themselves first. Why do people gravitate towards sweets? There's sort of a, a, a hormonal response and, a, and a, a, a gravitation towards these unhealthier foods. And indeed, if we start uh, uh, being more attentive, to the foods we eat, uh, especially with prebiotics. And, and people think about probiotics as being sort of an interesting thing, but it's really not about probiotics. And, and the big revelation of the last few years is that probiotics that you can buy in the grocery stores, I mean, it's an interesting idea, and, and they won't do you harm in most cases, but it's really not getting to the root cause that's the, that's, uh, that's the issue, is that your microbes 
in your lower GI are starving because our diets are terrible, or in some cases, you've taken antibiotics or other medicines that might uh, destroy their numbers. The issue with probiotics. Quick question, uh, quick, quick question here before we go on. What, what do you th- so the microbes are there? They're there. They've they've found a niche that they want to just hang out in. They want to live. They want to keep their homeostasis. They want to eat and do what they do. So what what is the consequence of us eating food that starves them out versus us eating food that helps them? You know, when they, I, you know, again, I'm anthropomorphizing, but do they take revenge? What do they do if if they sense that the cells around them are getting food, but they're not, as opposed to them getting food? What what do they have behaviors that? Yeah, what, what happens under the normal condition is that there's a feedback control loop that exists. So if you ever had the experience where you go out and you have sort of a, a simple, you know, carbohydrate sort of meal and you're hungry in another hour or two, uh, that's an open loop. You can have thousands of calories that way and constantly be hungry. And I would say that a good number of people in the Western world, Americans in particular, are eating that way such that the loop is not closed. And what do I mean by the loop? If you actually have the prebiotics in your diet that go down to the lower GI and feed the bacteria the right ones, their numbers will populate, repopulate, get larger in number. Now, you think that's what's going to happen with probiotics, and it's not the case. There's just not enough microbes in, in, the, in the probiotics. But by feeding them prebiotics, their numbers will repopulate to significant numbers. And this is the important part. They not only are um, repopulated, but they now are able to produce very important uh, metabolites, the things that they produce. And the rough analogies, if, if you were imagining um, uh, uh, brewing beer, uh, we're starving the, the yeast in the beer, and you need to feed the yeast so it can produce the alcohol. Now, it's sort of a bad analogy because we're not talking about alcohol here, but we are starving the microbes, and if we can get their numbers back up with prebiotics, and then also those prebiotics are used as the food stock where the microbes down there will produce things like short-chain fatty acids. And it's those short-chain fatty acids that are sensed by our cells lining our gut, and those cells then release gut hormones. This is a well-elucidated sort of series of scientific experiments over the last 10 years or so, uh, known as PYY, and there's other hormones like GLP-1. Uh, PYY is amongst the things that provide satiety. So there's a connection between our gut and our brain. If we feed those microbes in the lower GI with the fiber and the prebiotics that get down and feed those bacteria, they then produce short-chain fatty acids, which are then sensed by our cells or, or absorbed by our cells in the, in the GI that then produce gut hormones that then say, ah, we're full now. We, we don't need to eat a lot. And that was one of the things that we did in our clinical trials. We did that experiment. There's a whole battery of questions you can ask people in clinical trials. They ask, how much do you think you can eat right now? How much do you want to eat right now? How much have you been eating? And there's been validation of these different questions and sort of a form of an instrument, if you will, uh, that is used in a whole series of double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized trials such as we've uh, we've done with our product. And at the end of the four-week period where people had been taking our, our, uh, our product for uh, two servings, a day, and the product is called Biome Bliss, B-I-O-M-E-B-L-I-S-S, Biome Bliss. Then when they've taken that two days, the last visit, they came in and they were given this battery of instruments, and, and they didn't know if they had been taking the placebo or had been taking our product. And the measures of satiety, hunger control, were the, the thing that was clinically and statistically significant. So it was really important uh, finding. Uh, if you were to have a healthy diet with 12 or 15 servings of fruit and vegetables a day with uh, uh, perhaps 30, 40 grams of, of prebiotics fiber, you would have a good diet and keep your microbes well-fed. And that that loop closed of, of the satiety hormones like PYY, satiety hormones, keeping your brain 
letting you know, I've had enough to eat, so I don't need to eat right now. And when you're eating simple carbohydrates, that's not happening. And you just go back, you'd have more pizza, you'd have more ice cream, you'd have more sugary stuff, and it, it just never uh, uh, stops. It's a, it's, a, it's a spiral that gets out of control. Okay, well, we'll get to the bio-bliss in more detail in a minute. I said probably one other question. Um, how much do we rely on the, again, the production of short-chain fatty acids and other metabolites by our, our bacteria? How many processes rely on that, do you believe? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a huge absence when you're 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 not uh, taking uh, prebiotics and, and fiber. So if your diets are off, which something like eighty five percent of the American diet is uh, substantially uh, short of of prebiotic fibers, then yeah, the the absence of the short chain uh, fatty acids is the issue. Um, you're generally not eating short chain fatty acids. They don't generally, if you were to you know find a way of eating them, they wouldn't get down there. And you need to have those short-chain fatty acids released, uh, in this case, by microbes in the lower GI. So it's, it's really an, an important aspect. Just like you might think of taking vitamin C as an important thing for life, well, having short-chain fatty acids, um, although you could feed yourself sugar for, for a lifetime, it would be too short, perhaps. Um, but uh, we really need to be able to get the microbes to help, help you. And so there, you frequently think the microbes are there just for the ride. They're definitely not there for the ride. We have evolved as a species. Mammals have evolved as a group of species in conjunction with the microbes that they carry. And the microbes that we carry are essential for us to, uh, to have uh, healthy and full lives. How much do you think that they'll exert their influence if not fed? I mean, you know, it seems like they'll make us hungry. From what I've read and seen, they'll make us irritable. You know, they'll drive us towards eating a lot more food than we otherwise would if we eat the wrong food. But how else do they exert their influence if they're not cared for? Yeah, one of the, one of the expressions that uh, people use in this field is if you don't feed your microbes, the microbes will feed on you. And uh, a lot of people will will um, relate to the the phrase leaky gut, but also all the other indications that are gut related, IBS, IBD, uh, leaky gut, uh, also many immune disorders where there is a more systemic uh, uh, response to uh, immune imbalance can can actually stem from the gut. And, and what happens is, as we, especially for those of us that eat, you know, simple carbs too much, perhaps, or go through peculiar diets, um, the microbes that are down there, they like to eat carbohydrates, and the carbohydrates they like to eat are prebiotics. There's other carbohydrates in and around them, and the carbohydrates that are there are the mucus layer that layers the, the or lines the, the, the uh, large intestines. So you imagine it's a tube, it's a mucus-covered mucus membrane all the way from your, your mouth and your nose all the way to the backside. And importantly, in that large intestines where there's um, the vast majority of the microbes in our entire body, lots of important things are taking place. The number one place, the, the highest um, interaction between your immune system and the outside world that informs the immune system's response to the outside world is taking place actually inside the gut. You say, well, that sounds like the inside. Well, actually, the tube that goes through through us all um, is sort of on the outside. When you eat food, it goes down there, and something like 70% of the immune system's response and its inf information, the way it, it gets ready for uh, 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 a response to an invasion or how it gets quieted down so it doesn't over-respond and cause an autoimmune response, a lot of that tuning across a very broad spectrum of potential pathogens and things that ought not to be considered pathogens is calibrated finally in the gut by the things that we eat and the bacteria that grow there. 
So what happens if we don't feed them? Well, it's it's actually a, a lot of bad things that happen. One, I, I mentioned earlier, which is your hunger goes out of control. Two is the bacteria start eating away at the mucosa, mucosal lining. What happens then is which bacteria are still there will have an overly, in, a large, too large of an influence and too much interaction with the immune cells inside our body. And so they could be having an exaggerated response and you could perhaps have the immune system within the body then overreact and actually have an autoimmune response in other parts of the body. So one of the things that we did when, when um, a physician was using our, our product with a patient with psoriasis, and it's just an open label, it was one patient, but they found that the, 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 the skin measures of the psoriasis level were much improved. And we're not making claims to that effect because that's more of a therapeutic claim, but it's just a, indicating the indication or indicating that the connection between the downside of the microbes actually attacking and eating the mucosal layer if you don't feed them well. So one of the things that we did in our product was add beta-glucan. And beta-glucan is sort of a decoy, if you will. It's a substrate. It's a food stuff that the microbes eat. It's also mucosally adherent, and it helps provide a, a, a growth substrate for the, the good microbes uh, that would otherwise just uh, be settling into the, the mucosal layer and, and playing nice in order to keep the, the bad actors from eating the mucosal layer and actually causing this, this disruption that I mentioned. So it's really important to recognize that there is a substantial downside beyond just overeating. Um, if you know the word leaky gut, then you know what I'm talking about. If you know IBS and IBD, uh, if you know other autoimmune um, uh, disorders, these are things that now people are increasingly studying the impact and the role of the gut microbiome and those indications. So for instance, leaky gut, IBD, et cetera, it sounds like what's happening is the person's eating foods that are selecting for bacteria that would attack them, that would eat their mucosal lining, starving the bacteria that would protect them and provide normal functioning for the host. All that, can, that can be part of it. It's, it's actually by not feeding the good guys. And, and so in balance, what you said is, is right. But the, the way I think about it is that if you, uh, this is a competitive environment in, in uh, the microbe world down there. And if you're feeding them the good stuff, then the good guys are producing good molecules and, and there's homeostasis and, and there's not dysbiosis. If you're not feeding them, then the competitive stresses means that they're going to do something to survive. And amongst the things that they do, uh, is start to consume the, uh, the mucus. And, and the mucus layer is a protective layering sheath that's in the tube of our GI, uh, our intestines. And that's a very bad thing to start. Um, and what you'd like to do is to not have that start. Or if you've had that problem already, is then uh, start feeding them very carefully an increasing amount of, of, uh, of prebiotic fiber. Unfortunately, this is one of the things that's fascinating about this space is if you say the word fiber to you know, people, uh, maybe half the people would hear the word roughage when you say the word fiber. And if they had a stomach upset, they'd say, oh, I, I don't want fiber because I, I understand that causes issues. I have an issue with my, my lower intestine, so I don't want that roughage stuff. And unfortunately, it's exactly the wrong thing. Another thing I hear sometimes is, that, oh, there's some flatulence. I have some gas. And, and uh, you hear, hear the word bloating as if it's some dread disease. Guess what? You know that that activity down in the lower GI is 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 actually necessary to feed. And so if we if we make the wrong corrections in our diet, we'll actually be exasperating dramatically those issues that are causing the problem in the first place. And unfortunately, the medical community you know sometimes the last ones to learn about um, how to to change things. And and that's now now the micro, the microbiome is becoming understood. By, by at least registered dietitians, uh, naturopathic physicians are getting it, and, and, and MDs are also. But uh, I think it's, it's important to recognize it's really a healthy diet 
providing the prebiotics to the lower GI that is going to keep us out of, out of the, uh, the trouble. So are any microbes good or bad, or they're both? It just depends on if they're fed and cared for or not. Yeah, well, one of the one of the expressions that is is used in the field, it's not who's there, it's what they're doing, and that just is to help counteract the idea that there's good actors and bad actors. The, the truth is that both both things are partially true and partially false, uh, to be honest. And so the idea that there are some microbes that are bad is absolutely the case. You can have pathogens that there's no way of calling them a good actor. But uh, bacteria have this wonderful property, or, or at least fascinating property, of being able to change modes. Um, a, a, a bacteria can be quiescent and sort of uh, happily going away and not bothering anybody, and then they can get, become virulent and, and overpopulate and take over. Uh, there can be microbes that produce um, uh, a, a sort of a, a slime substance and, and uh, uh, will we'll be looking to, to establish um, a, a place to, to harbor themselves in the future. They can have quorum sensing, which is a way of communicating with each other, uh, sending out uh, factors that would indicate to members of their own species that, that they're, they're at a critical, critical mass and so they should now move somewhere else. So there is a lot of uh, communication and modality where they switch to, from mode A to mode B to mode C. But by and large, when it comes down to the the simpler sort of modeling here, it's the microbes that, that we focus on that produce short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are at the heart of so many of the things that we were just talking about uh, that it, it's a, an easy first focus, if you will, for this field. Whereas the field started thinking about probiotics, that was an okay way to get people's brains in the game and, and thinking about this. But really the next stage is to, to bolster the production of short-chain fatty acids, to protect, to protect the mucosal layer uh, from the erosion that takes place and the thinning that takes place through our, our bad diets. And, um, and when you have focused on that, then these bad actors, the real ones, you know, the, the guys that are always bad, have a, a hard time competing because uh, all the good ones are outnumbering and outcompeting the bad ones. And so it's a matter of feeding the good ones to produce the, the good stuff. And there's several species, you know, dozens, if not many hundreds of good species that if well-fed will, will actually um, uh, remain prevalent. One, one of the aspects of good and bad is a interesting subject. It's the diversity. And one of the measures that one can look at these days with next generation sequencing of DNA, you go and you, you look at poop samples and you can measure in, the, in the, the poop of individuals, you can look at the number of different species. And by and large, the, the more diverse the bacteria in an individual's GI, the healthier the individual. And so sometimes when people collapse their diets, as, as we get older, sometimes our, our appetite goes away and uh, older people may, may decrease the numbers of different types of food they eat because it's just simpler and, and they don't have the appetite to, to go more broadly. And what happens then is the collapse of the number of species to a, 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 a number that's too low. And generally speaking, it's, it's groups of, of bacteria working together with each other that are better able to stave off or to, to, to out-compete with those that are the bad actors. And so there can be a plurality of species that work in a cooperative fashion uh, where the, the metabolites of some feed as the substrates to others and they work in sort of a guild to uh, produce uh, good molecules and to, to keep away uh, the, the, the bad actors. Okay, well, a couple questions in there. So earlier on you talked about flatulence and bloating and not necessarily being bad. Why, why do those things happen and what does it mean? If, what, I know it's not just one thing, but what could it mean if those things are happening? So 
when when we've had bad diets for a, a long time, and one of the things we focused on is is um, a, what I would think of as a bottleneck uh, substrate. Uh, what's that? Uh, it's a, a food type that we don't eat enough of. And one of the broad food types that we don't eat enough of are a form of prebiotic. Not all prebiotics are actually fiber. There's a new class of prebiotics that are not fiber, um, and, and those are important to look at because they're scarce, rare substrates, foods that some of our mic microbes need. And a broad class of those is called polyphenols. Have you ever heard about how red wine might be a good thing to drink? It might be good for you. It's not the alcohol in red wine. It's the, 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 red, the red content, which are polyphenols, antioxidants. And some of these antioxidants, which people like to think about taking, they believe that those antioxidants are working throughout our body in some ways, and that may be true. The antioxidants, these polyphenols that I'm talking about, are actually working inside the gut and actually are being eaten by the bacteria. So one of the things we focused on is if you if you eat fiber, uh, some some of the simpler fibers are, are good for you. They produce short chain fatty acids as I described before. But those microbes, in addition to producing the short chain fatty acids, which is a good thing, they also produce hydrogen gas as a natural byproduct. Just like if you were uh, brewing, you know, uh, beer, the yeast would produce alcohol and CO2. So in this case, the bacteria that I'm talking about are eating the, the things like inulin which is a simple fiber, and, and producing short-chain fatty acids, which is the good news, and the bad news that they're producing hydrogen gas. The worst news is that hydrogen gas, interestingly, is then cross-fed into other microbes, other species of microbes that eat that hydrogen along with other substrates and produce hydrogen sulfide, not good, or other ones that eat the, the hydrogen gas produced by the first set along with other um, substrates and produce hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide and, I'm sorry, methane, and methane. So methane and hydrogen sulfide are known to correlate and associate with obesity and diabetes. So whether or not that's causal or associated, either way, it was seen as being an unfortunate byproduct of eating the simpler um, fiber. So what we did, back to the polyphenols, what we did was we added the polyphenols to our, our product because it bolsters yet another group of bacteria that then outcompete to eat up the hydrogen. And instead of producing noxious gases like hydrogen sulfide and methane, they produce even more short-chain fatty acids. So it's actually a, a very clever, and it's, a, it's a, the first in class of a new generation of, of prebiotics. It's a group of prebiotics working together, almost as if they were a consortia, sort of a, a, a well-coordinated group of prebiotics to feed different, different species of bacteria in a different way in order to optimize the production of these good things, the short-chain fatty acids, while decreasing the production of these bad things, hydrogen gas, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And it was the yeah. first, first time this has been done in history, and, and it was why we believe that we got such a good signal on, on uh, uh, controlling the blood sugar, uh, mealtime blood sugar, and also providing a satiety or a hunger control. Yeah, it's very, very smart. All right, I'm getting closer. Still got a few more questions, but it's getting there. Um, I guess I thought of a funny thing is that, you know, we all have pets that we can't get rid of, and our pets are our microbes, and uh, – you know, just like they say for dogs, you don't give them people food. I mean, our microbes, you don't give them people food. You want to give them microbe food. I wonder if that would be a funny analogy to tell people. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, in the animal uh, world, there's also issues of bad diets. And you imagine the diversity of diets for a lot of pets, for example, is very, very narrow. And a lot of uh, agricultural animals, the same thing. And so people are now recognizing the diversity. And so uh, we've actually, uh, our product actually is, is safe for, for animals to eat. Uh, blueberries are, are a good thing. Some things you, you don't want to provide to uh, animals, but you bring up the, uh, the animal. There's a whole world of people now uh, researching uh, agricultural microbiome subjects. The microbiome subject isn't just uh, limited to humans. It's also plants. Right. So, all right. So, you know, I, I'm sorry I've been teasing around it. You just have so much great info. Um, so Biome Bliss, the goal is to help the person select for the right microbes and to help those microbes proliferate and do all the things they need to do in that person's body to keep them healthy. So the goals are what satiety and... What else? What are the goals of BioBliss? Yeah, when we first designed the product, it was actually meant to help control uh, blood sugars at a, at a healthy level. And uh, that was a, the number one aim of our product, and it succeeded. Uh, as we launched the product, it was the other, uh, other measure that we took, which is the hunger control, which ended up being the more popular one. Something like 70 or 80% of Americans are either currently or recently on a diet. And amongst the things you could worry about with a diet obviously, is your insatiable appetite. And that insatiable part is the part we're addressing. I mean, how many of us have tried to lose weight and you lose weight for a while and then you put it back on? Well, why do you put it back on? So it's a matter of, of hunger control. Now, we do not make the claim of weight loss because weight loss is, you know, you, you know there's a lot of snake oil out there and, and we're a responsible company driven by medical uh, evidence in our own, our own clinical trials, which are at a high level of standards. And so what we were able to measure was hunger control, and that's, that's the, the message we stick to. So the hunger tr control is important, but the blood sugar, uh, uh, maintaining blood sugar at a healthy level was actually from a scientific viewpoint, I think um, perhaps the more fascinating. The, the, the gut-brain access um, is working in two different ways. It's one, the, the hunger control, but the, the, the gut is also producing hormones that control blood sugar. So when we take um, a meal, if you look at the blood sugar response in our bloodstream over the next couple of hours, it goes up. And then it comes down. And if you eat a sugary meal, it goes quite, quite far up and then it, it takes some time to come back down again. That glycemic response. And people talk about how different foods have different glycemic response and we should keep, you know, not take a lot of foods that are, have a gly, high glycemic response. And that's all true. What's fascinating about our product it was it, it basically decreased the glycemic response to glucose. So there was a standard test at the end of the four-week uh, trial. People took glucose and they, they watched the blood sugar go up and it comes down. If they had been on our product for the last four weeks, the blood sugar um, excursion um, was much less and much shorter in time. That basically gave a lower glycemic response, even though it was the standard dose of glucose that was part of this, this test. So translated into everyday life, what that means, and this, this was the effect the day after they had taken our product. It's not the response to our product I'm talking about. It's the response to having taken our product for four weeks leading up to this test. So what that translates to people's lives that have been taking our product is that the food that they were eating, typically, let's say you have a piece of pecan pie, um, that pecan pie would have had a glycemic response. It would have been lower if you had been also taking our product for the pre previous several weeks. And that, that is because of the, the hormone, in this case the GLP-1, has the effect of changing the gastric emptying rate, and it also has to do with the, the um, blood sugar control. 
And so blood sugar control is at the heart of a lot of things. And, and, and we do not make any uh, associate, we don't make claims that our, our product is treating or, or addressing diseases at all. That's not what our product is, is intended to do. But when we look at what a healthy diet represents, those hormonal signals are in balance and, and keeping us healthy. And so if you don't have these things in your diet, if you're not having 14, 12 or 14 uh, servings of fruits and vegetables per day, then this is an easy way to get that same sort of signaling going. And what we've done, uh, to, and it took quite a bit of effort, our product is very low in calories. So when you take a full serving of our product, it would have, would have been 380 calories of fruit and vegetables. It's a big pile of, you know, sort of like a big salad with fruit in it, if you will. And uh, those things are from oats. Uh, they're from agave, which could be Jerusalem artichokes also as another source, and also blueberries. So you imagine 380 calories of those three things sitting on your plate. It would take you minutes to, to prepare and minutes to eat, and it would have had 380 calories. What we've done is taken the prebiotics portion of those things, including those non-fiber prebiotics, those polyphenols, and extracted the sugar and set that aside and only taken the healthy parts and made it into a very uh, flavorful and nice drink for that people enjoy taking. So let's face it, a lot of people are going to eat their cheeseburgers and have their French fries, and you might not change that right away. And we frequently think about our diets as those things we feel guilty about eating, and that's fine. We can always have that guilt if you want to. Right. But it's also, more times than not, about the good things you're not eating. So how do you have a person that's eating a cheeseburger and French fries then also have what would have been a 380-calorie uh, pile of fruits and vegetables, except in this case, it's only 60 calories. And so that's what allows, it's almost like a milkshake, if you, if you will. It's something that they would like to have. And then at least by getting the person up and running, you're not going to convince a lot of people eating those you know, cheeseburgers and french fries to now have this huge salad. You know, it's just not going to happen. But can you have this, this smoothie mix? Sure, well, they're game for that. Do that for a few weeks, then we can start addressing maybe decreasing the calories on the other side. So it's an on-ramp to good eating. eating. We're, we're not arguing that people should you know, have this product for the rest of their lives. That's not the point. The point is to, a lot of us are out of control. Our hunger is, is unsatiable. How do you get that under control? How do you start helping people get, get on? And after a few months on Biome Bliss, then we would hope that people can start introducing more fruits and vegetables to their diet, more fiber to their diet, and actually then start to decrease those bad things and decrease the overall caloric intake that would, would actually then allow them to improve their health and perhaps keep them healthier longer in their lives than otherwise might be the case. In your clinical trials, what kind of cohorts did you have? Did you try to control for diet? You know, perhaps like you had a, a group eating the standard American diet and another group that was eating, you know, let's say, very low-carb, low-sugar, still using the BioBliss. Have you done that? No, so so those sorts of trials are are interesting, and and uh, as you can imagine, we've had a lot of brainstorming sessions on which trials we'd like to do. Um, but when when we were first designing these first trials, uh, trial design is a is a very um, uh, intensive activity. You want to control for for uh, variables in some cases, and you want to allow for for uh, normal uh, uh, behavior, if you will. So one of the aspects of our our um, cohorts was to have people with elevated BMIs, so they were individuals that were carrying more weight than they, they wanted to, and uh, that also meant that their, their blood sugar was, was sort of a, a varying from being normal to higher, you know, higher levels of, of, uh, of uh, fasting blood glucose. And, um, and, that, and that was sort of the selection criteria, but during the course of the, the clinical trial itself, because there's placebo takers and there's product takers and you don't know who's who, you basically encourage them to you know, continue doing their daily routine 
and being attentive to their their health and whatnot. Don't do anything. You know, don't. We're asking them just to carry on with what they're doing. You don't want to have weird variables coming in uh, to influence the results. You want to have the, as clean and honest results as you possibly can. And so that, that's what we did. And uh, subsequently, um, what we've, we found, so we, we, we also picked up regularity, which was one that uh, we, we thought was going to come out. But uh, people, uh, it's, it's the most boring of our three uh, claims. We, we, we say that we help control hunger, which is the most popular. We help blood sugar, which is important for a lot of people that are, are worrying about blood sugar. But the regularity, we found that the demographics of 60-year-old people and older who have constipation issues, uh, occasional constipation or actually occasional diarrhea, they take our product. And well, gosh, it makes a ton of sense. You know, you have issues with occasional constipation or occasional diarrhea guess what? The microbiome has something to do with that. What a surprise. And so uh, this first became apparent to us when there was individuals that were taking metformin uh, that had diarrhea from taking that product. And when that happens, they don't like to keep on taking their product. So we ended up doing a clinical trial with 100% of the people that enrolled in that trial were individuals that had had issues with metformin. They took metformin and had diarrhea, occasional diarrhea. And so we had a, a, a cohort of patients um, with placebo and those with ours and went through the, the process in a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial and came out that, lo and behold, the um, tolerability index was much improved uh, by, by taking our product. And when we looked at some of the data uh, for regularity uh, uh, constipation, people that were having one BMI per three days, that's a very unhappy camper. Went, uh, many of them became one per day, which made them happy campers. So we've had um, a lot of customers that we've uh, spoken with, and they've, they've convinced us that once they try this and they, they, they go from that, that one bowel movement every three days to once a day, they're very, very loyal. And so we've had a lot of customers coming back for three, four, five, six, seven orders now, the fascinating thing is the, the those were the three that we focused on in our clinical trial. But the fascinating thing is now that we've been in thousands of, of people, people have come back and told us what their findings are. And, you know, this is anecdotal and it's just it's, it's you know not rigorous science as of yet. But these are hints of, of what's to come in this field of the microbiome. We've had people report that their sleep is improved, that their dream states are improved. That their moods, their moods are improved. That their energy levels are higher, and it's it's fascinating to hear these because you don't know. Is is it just somebody you know that's sort of pretending or or imagining? You don't know. Uh, the skin thing I mentioned earlier, skin tone. There's a lot of people now studying the influence of the microbiome in the gut influencing the skin. You know, go figure. How does how does the skin have anything to do with the gut? Well, it turns out there's a lot to, to do with this between the skin and that immune system that I mentioned earlier. So how, how long until uh, once people start taking the Biome Bliss, um, how long until they start experiencing effects? So uh, people frequently feel it in the first day or two. Um, one of the things that we've, we've found is that you talk about uh, gas. If an individual is a larger person, let's say individuals weighing 300 pounds or so, they might experience a little of that gas I mentioned earlier. And what we encourage them is to start with a half a half a scoop you know, and, and work up uh, slowly. Um, and the re what's going on there is that those microbes that are eating the polyphenols in some individuals are just very, very depleted. They haven't had uh, uh, raw fruit or vegetables for a long time, and those guys need a few days to sort of repopulate. And so uh, we found that the, those individuals uh, will, will experience a little gas to begin with. But after about three or four days, that settles in, and they begin to feel the other effect. 
And uh, what's what's interesting about that effect of feeling um, satiety kick in a little bit better, uh, it it, uh, it doesn't happen minutes after you take the product. This is not a thing of fullness. There's a different technical measure between fullness, which is that immediate feeling that I just ate too much. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being satisfied, which is a different set of measures and, and coming from those hormone uh, uh, actions that I mentioned. That can be like 8, 10, 12, 15 hours after you've taken the Biome Bliss. So people ask me, when should I take Biome Bliss? It doesn't much matter. You can take it in the morning, you can take it in the afternoon. It's going to have its effect cumulatively over a few days. So I'd say if you really want to get a sense of it, give it a week. And then also, it may last for many days after you've taken your, your last serving. So, and then what you do is you try to get your diet back onto a route where you're, you are a, a, a habit where you're taking more fruits and vegetables of the, the normal kind. The nice thing is that this is very low in calories, so you can add it on to whatever you're doing currently, and it's not going to make you go from 2,500 or 3,000 calories to twice that. It's, it's just going to add you know, uh, 60 calories per serving. Well, I guess because of the, uh, the normal transit time for food is, what, 30 hours or so, it probably would take... 30 hours to get into place into the lower bowel. Yeah, it's, it's uh, 30 hours to exit. Uh, so it's there from about uh, anywhere from two to three hours in the fast side to maybe four or five hours. But then from about five hours to uh, 20 hours is the residence time. And so the, the meal that you ate a day ago is, is in some cases there. The meal you had eight hours ago is, is there. And what's happening during that time, it's accumulating. The water is being extracted and it's being densified. And the fermentation process, which is all sort of yucky, yucky language, but that's the, 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 the fascinating part of this, is the fermentation process of producing all these molecules. And so the population of microbes at the beginning of the large intestines, which is the part that goes up and then over and then down again and then out the other side, um, the microbe spectrum might be different in the different parts of the, of the large intestines. And so uh, the, the, uh, the actions of your, your morning meal you may begin to feel in the evenings. The, the actions of your evening meal you may pick up the next day. Uh, I, I myself, I, I used to recommend taking it in the morning and afternoon with this in mind. And I, I started taking it myself in the evenings. And that's where I started noticing the, the, the sleep difference and, and dreaming difference. And at first I thought it maybe it was just my imagination. I, I started hearing it from other people. And, and um, it was the dream, the dream state in particular that was uh, uh, people uh, made note of. And so who knows, maybe we'll do a clinical trial someday on, on how, how BioMbliss uh, helps people sleep or, or maybe even their dreams. I mean, would an ideal protocol to try would be to have a, you know, let's say a third of a scoop with each meal and space it out throughout the day? Uh, so that would be a way of doing it. The thing that is interesting ab about um, the way that the microbes produce is it, it's sort of a bolus. You know, we tend to eat in, in settings, if you are sit sittings, and, and take it in. So um, that would be an experiment you could actually do, which would be, you know, take, uh, you know, get yourself to the point where you take two, two servings once a day all at once versus spread it out evenly. That would be an interesting comparison if you, if you want to get it. It sounds like you're getting into this clinical trial design. Another thing which is fascinating trial design-wise, you know, the, one of the things that's very popular is, is intermittent fasting. And so intermittent fasting is, it comes in lots of different ways. People stop eating for, uh, let's say, 19, 18 hours a day, 
and then you know, eat in a very short period of time between you know, morning and, and midday and not eat the entire other time. So they're fasting for the other time. Another form of intermittent fasting is is where they eat for five days a week, but then actually fast themselves for, for uh, two separate or sometimes two together days, uh, 100%. One of the things that's interesting is who are you fasting? Well, by and large, of course, you're fasting yourself as the host, but you're also fasting the microbes. One of the other clinical trials we'd like to do someday is, well, what might be the results if you actually kept providing prebiotics, low-calorie stuff, so you weren't disobeying the rules of your intermittent fasting diet, but actually maintain taking our product, BiomeBliss, during the fasting period. And I think that might actually give better results. And another diet that's just as long as we're on the subject of diets, the keto diet. And I know a lot of people have tried the keto diet and are real fans of it. And then if you talk to medical professionals, they're a little bit wary of it because you're, you're, you're eating a lot of stuff and, and not eating other things. So one of the things we've recognized, and, and we're not proponents of the keto diet, but we recognize if somebody is on the keto diet, amongst the things you could legitimately worry about on their behalf is that they're starving their microbes of fiber because the fiber is frequently coming with sugar. You're not going to have that apple because that apple's got fructose in it. Okay, well, what we've done, and have gone to a great length, extreme to, to get rid of the sugar, is we have taken those fibers, those prebiotics, out um, and, and, and left the sugar behind. So you could take Biome Bliss as part of your keto diet and actually uh, reconstitute the parts in the keto diet that many people would consider dangerous, especially for long-term keto diet takers. And so if you're on the keto diet, you might consider the Biome Bliss, uh, taking the Biome Bliss as a way of, of not starving those microbes in your lower GI, which I mentioned earlier about the microbes. If you don't feed them, then they'll feed on you sort of thing. Well, gosh, guess what? If you're on a keto diet, that may well be the case. And so You'd be, we, you'd be concerned about the immunomodulation. There's lots of things that people say good about the keto diet, and I'm not, not going against that, but I'm saying is the keto diet plus a low-calorie, essentially no sugar, very low amounts of sugar, um, uh, uh, way of um, nurturing your lower GI microbiome might be just the ticket for people on the keto diet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, or any diet for that matter. Um, what do you notice? Uh, what do people report? How does their eating change after they've been using Biome Bliss for, let's say, a month? Do they just eat the same way they always ate, or do they find themselves eating differently? Well, one of the, uh, we did an a exhaustive uh, customer uh, survey and uh, in, in started having you know in-depth interviews just to see things like that, and and people would mention like they used to get used to occasionally, and you know people um, when you ask people about food things, there's um, a threshold at which point they stop uh, misspeaking or lying and start telling you the truth. And it, it's, it's well known in, in, the, in diet scientists is that we all sort of fool ourselves and we fool people that are interviewing us and, and you usually underreport the amount of food you eat. That's sort of a known thing in the, in the, in the professional scientific community that studies nutrition. But when we're talking to these people, there's a threshold at which they start giving you the anecdotal examples where you sort of they, they let their hair down, so to speak, and start talking the, the, the truth. People saying things like, I used to go to the freezer at 8.30, 9.30 at night and get the pint of haagen And I don't know what happened, but a half an hour later, the thing's gone. And now that I've been taking Biome Bliss, I don't do that. I'll take a third of it and put the, the pint back in and then have two more days that I can have that later in the week. So anecdotal things like that, you know, it's hard to do clinical trials to pick that up. But this binge eating that we, you know, many of us at least have experienced, maybe that's one of the, the biggest changes is people feel a little bit more in control. 
And I would say that if somebody had gone to the trouble of starving themselves with a, a caloric restriction, which that's sort of the most effective way of losing weight is just going on, on uh, severe diets, that works. Actually, most people can do that with some willpower. That's not the, the, the trick. The trick is to keeping off that weight. And so at that point, I'd say the uh, hunger uh, control is one of the things that, that is probably the most cited when we interview people in depth um, after they've had our product or, or purchased it two or three times. Uh, is the number one uh, reason why people keep on coming back is that it changes their their um, their desire to go back and 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 have uh, overconsumption of of sweet things. Yeah, that's great. So, is Biome Bliss now commercially available, or what stage are you at? Yeah, so uh, we've been uh, selling the product and it's selling online. So it's uh, biomebliss.com. Biome is B-I-O-M-E and Bliss B-L-I-S-S. Biome Bliss, and you can also buy it on Amazon. We've we've made a couple of changes to the products since uh, I was on your show last. Uh, we notice uh, that people there's many people out in the, the the community that don't like soy for various reasons associated with their health, and so we had a very very small amount of soy in our product previously just to help it mix. We've taken the soy out, so Biome Bliss is now soy free. Uh, we have also introduced a smaller canister so people can give it a try at a, a, a more convenient price. And that's really helped. So both those things, there's about 10% of the people that were soy wary. And uh, so those people don't have to be wary anymore. They can try Biome Bliss. And also you can you can get in at a, at a very attractive uh, price. We found people are coming back second, third, and fourth times um, uh, increasingly so. So the repeat purchases are going up. That's great. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Dale, it's, it's always great to talk to you. You're like super knowledgeable about all this stuff. Well-spoken. So, um, so people can go to where to get the product. Again, Amazon, they search for Biome Bliss and the website again, what is it? Biomebliss.com. B-I-O-M-E-B-L-I-S-S. Biome Bliss. Okay. Well, very good. Any last questions you want to answer, Dale, or you think we've covered everything? Well, if, if you uh, give Biome Bliss a try, I would love to hear from you because uh, these things I mentioned as sort of anecdotal findings, uh, the more people that let us know what they're experiencing, uh, we may very well do a clinical trial and maybe you'd want to be part of it. It's just sort of, we were, we're sort of science geeks, we're biome, uh, biome geeks, and uh, we also uh, believe that this, this sort of insight can, can do a lot of good for health in our society, and, and Lord knows we, we need that. So if you want to be part of that citizen scientist sort of thing, uh, let us know how you're experiencing Biome Bliss. Definitely. Well, Dale, thank you for coming very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. 
Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.